Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is the Archbishop of San Francisco, Salvatore Cordeleone. We're doing this interview a week before the bishops of the United States hold their annual meeting. Catholics are watching closely because there's been a lot of debate about pro-choice Catholic politicians receiving the Eucharist, what Catholics believe is the body and blood of Jesus. So you may have heard of him. You may have heard of uh, the Archbishop of San Francisco, Archbishop Cordelione. I mean, he's been very outspoken on abortion, on marriage, on the Eucharist. And I think sometimes people might say, who is this guy? Is, are these the only things he ever cares about? Well, let's see. Let's have the conversation. Who is he? What animates him? What motivates him? What was he like as a young priest? What brought him to the priesthood? His vocation, his immigrant family, Eucharist and the life of the church. What does he think about the consistent life ethic? What really motivates and inspires him? I really want to understand where he's coming from and hear him in his own words. And I'm hoping you can lean in and listen as well. Even if he's somebody that you think you completely disagree with, I want you to listen and discover who he is. And you know, I'm sure that plenty of you listening who already see him as a great hero in the hierarchy of the church in the United States, and you never know, he could say something that challenges you as well in your faith, in your understanding of our faith, in your understanding of the human person. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. How to do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione is up next. Your Excellency, I'm so happy you're able to join me on the podcast. You know, one of the things that is I'm very curious about when I talk to priests and bishops is their vocation story. Like, when did you hear the call? How did that happen? I know you were ordained in 1982 in San Diego, but I'm very curious about your vocation story. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your show and doing this podcast. My vocation story. Yes, I grew up in San Diego. My father was a commercial fisherman. His father was a commercial fisherman. It was the typical immigrant story. San Diego, of course, is a big Navy town, and he had served in the Navy, and I saw that Navy there. And I always had a desire to give myself to a higher cause, Mm. and I didn't want to just kind of skate through life just for the purpose of having fun and making a lot of money, and Mm -hmm. that just seemed too superficial of an existence to me. So I, I kind of got the, in my imagination, serving my country, maybe in the Navy or some kind of a military career. But I always took my faith seriously, you know, going through my school years, through elementary, junior high, high school. I wasn't thinking about being a priest, but my religion was always important. I never went through a phase where I stopped practicing or didn't believe in it anymore. 
But then toward the end of high school and my first year of college, I was getting more spiritually serious and began wondering if maybe that was what God was calling me to do, or was he calling me to do something else? What really would make a difference in life? There was a young priest in my parish that kind of was an inspiration to me, especially as homilies, kind of things that I was trying to grapple with. It seemed he always addressed them in the homilies. Hmm. So I finally got up the nerve to talk to him about it. And he sent me on a discernment weekend at the local college seminary they had in San Diego at the time. When I got to know other young men thinking about it, I didn't feel so strange. (laughs) And then I got to know the seminarians and what the life of the seminary was about. So that draw just never went away. And I knew I had to give it a try to, to test it in the seminary to see if that was really what God was calling me to. So I transferred as a sophomore. Wow. And I enjoyed the life of the seminary. I felt like the right fit for me. So you still ended up being a fisher of men, though. <laughs> if you think about it, you really I'm fond of saying I'm the only grandson carrying on the family trade. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, yes. good point. Good point. Yes. That's so beautiful. You went and said, you know, I'll, I'll see. You didn't necessarily go and say, yeah, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be that. You went in very open and really humble and said, you know, I'll see what is calling me. And that's beautiful because I think sometimes people think that you have to already know for sure that you're going to be a priest but you were just willing to go see and hear. That's what I thought when I was thinking about going into the seminary. And then on the re- that discernment retreat, I found out what the seminary was really more about. It's mutual discernment, right? Because they, the faculty yes. discerns the students, the seminarians right. too. So what did you feel like was your mission then as a priest when you first were ordained? Um, not long after that in the Los Angeles area was a lot of turmoil with the beating of Rodney King and all the things that happened. I'm thinking you were somewhat of a baby priest then, you know. So how how did you see your mission unfolding as a priest? I was going through the seminary during some exciting transformative years in the church. I did my philosophy studies in the seminary in San Diego. I was a student at the University of San Diego. Mm-hmm. And then I did my theology studies in Rome. I started in 1978. Uh, my class flew over together the day before the installation of Pope John Paul I. Oh, wow. So we saw that. We were there for his death and the funeral. I was in the St. Peter's Square when John Paul II was elected. Oh, wow. So it was very historical time in the church. I, and I was able to kind of observe John Paul. I, I felt kind of a spiritual closeness, and sometimes physical closeness. You know, I served midnight mass from as a seminarian. I was a deacon oh. of the oils in my deacon year. When oh, I wow. returned for graduate studies as a priest, I was able to celebrate mass with him in his private chapel. So I had certain privileged encounters such as that. So I saw my mission as helping to form people more deeply in their Catholic faith, helping to understand the deep, beautiful tradition that we have. Then the Rodney King episode happened a few years later. That was in the early 90s. Yeah. So by that time, I had returned to Rome and completed my doctoral degree in canon law. I did two years of work in the diocesan office as the bishop's secretary and in the tribunal. But then a parish opened up. They couldn't find a pastor to send to. So it's right on the Mexican border in the Imperial Valley, Okay. the town of Calexico. I was also involved in marriage encounter and in leadership. So I was in contact with other couples and priests from all over the state, especially the southern part of the state. So I kind of got a little more sense of a connection with that through that. So for people who are listening, some people might not know marriage encounter is a ministry to married couples that help people in marriage and things like that is really supportive of marriage. 
And I want to say that because I'm like, people might not know what Marriage Encounter is. How to make a good marriage great. Yes. Those weekends were fascinating to me. It's not about building community among the couples on the weekend. It's each couple working on their marriage. But by the end of the weekend, there's such a strong sense of bonding of the whole, all of the couples there and the priest. So it speaks to me about the power of, of the sacrament. So you've been involved in quite a bit of ministry that really puts you in contact with people living sometimes with challenges and difficulty. I imagine being on the, the border with Mexico in a rural community with a large Spanish-speaking population, you probably saw a lot of things. And I think there's so much going on right now, a lot of challenging things happening in the United States vis-a-vis the faith and people trying to work these things out. And so I want to really talk about something I think that's been reported on a lot in Catholic media and even the secular media is the meeting between the Holy Father and President Biden. And while he says they did not talk about abortion, he says that we just talked about the fact that he, meaning the Pope, was happy that, if I'm quoting Biden, he says, he was happy that I was a good Catholic and I should keep receiving communion. And look, it is well known that President Biden, while he says he's personally pro-life, does not promote or behave in a way that promotes policies around the issue of abortion that are in accord with the church's teaching. And so I'm wondering, how do you interpret this comment? What are the things that maybe come to mind when you hear this? A number of things come to mind. First of all, when you brought up about, he says he's personally opposed. That was his position at one time. It's not what it is now. You know, he keeps changing his position on this issue, probably others well, but clearly on this issue, he keeps changing it in accordance with the platform of the Democratic Party. Hmm. He seems to be more guided by the Democratic Party than this Catholic faith on the issues where we're not in harmony. Uh, some things that the Democrats work on, we are, but some very important issues we're not. So he recently said that he no longer believes that life begins at conception, which is a problem for a couple of reasons. One is it's not a matter of religious belief when life begins. It's a matter of science. You know, uh, science tells us life begins at conception. So it's not a matter of religious belief. The church affirms that. So he is explicitly dissenting not only from church teaching, but from sound science. About his remark, we don't know if the Pope really said that. Okay. So mm-hmm. the Vatican has neither affirmed nor denied that. But he may not have said that. I tend to believe that the Pope didn't say that, or at least exactly that. You know, I think many other people in a position of leadership, such as I, have had the experiences that I have where often I say one thing and people Uh hear something else. Mm. People tend to hear what they want to hear. The Pope may have said something that President Biden heard to mean that. Huh. So you're thinking it's not that the Pope said it, it's that Biden heard something different than what the Pope did say. Yes. So I have noticed that one of the things that you're doing in regard to a politician in your diocese who is vocally pro-abortion and has put legislation forward that you would call child sacrifice. So you probably think her abortion, the things she's put, super extreme. But what you've done is you've called on Catholics to pray and fast for her conversion. Has Speaker Pelosi spoken to you about that? I've heard uh, I've heard nothing from her office since I launched this campaign, but I, I'm hoping to have another conversation with her in the, in the near future. So uh, we'll see how they respond to that. But so far, no, I haven't 
gotten any communication from her office on it. But she's open to hear. I mean, she understands that she's open to talking with you and understands that you are the archbishop of the diocese and in that role that you have care for everybody's soul in the diocese and as well as the chief defender of the faith in the diocese. Yes, we've had conversations in the past and she's very respectful of me. I have to give her credit for that. She's never kind of defiant or or mean-spirited. She's always been very respectful. So I think she's a good example of how when there are bitter disagreements, we can still converse civilly. The other thing that I was thinking about too, you know, when you asked for a prayer for Nancy Pelosi, that's one of the things that I was thinking about too, is the difficulty on the spiritual level. Absolutely. And because she's such a public person, to ask the public for, look, help, help, help with our sister. Those of you who see that this is, you know, dangerous for her soul, join me in this work. But then I think some people somehow received that as maybe attacking her or targeting her. What would you want to say to people that are perceiving it that way? Well, Francis tells us that we should be pastors, not politicians. Mm. So I don't know what could be more pastoral than prayer and fasting. I I don't know how can you argue with that. I mean, this is a very serious issue since this last almost 50 years since Roe, more than 60 million babies have been Mm -hmm. murdered in their mother's wombs. I mean, it's a bloodbath, not to mention the mothers who have been harmed and dealing with those scars, those emotional scars and psychological scars, and very often are not allowed to even talk about it. They're feeling this, they hold this anguish inside and they're not allowed to let it out. So thank God for some opportunities for them to do that. And who are the ones who are helping them to heal? We are. You know, those who say that they're for women, their response is, you're not supposed to be feeling that. So they have to bury it and just eat away at them all the more and all the more. Who offers them healing opportunities? Sweetie. Who offers them opportunities to give birth? You know, there are many choices. Yes, yeah. Abortion yeah. is only one choice. It's the one wrong choice. But yeah. there's adoption. There's raising the child herself. There's the old-fashioned solution of marriage. Yeah. You know, if it happens to be a responsible man who's willing to make that commitment. You know, so our pro-life crisis pregnancy clinics that are run by people of faith yeah. who are, I say, they're the ones who are pro-choice because they're giving her every choice except one. Right, <laughs> right. These, okay. You know, these abortion clinics, they give her only one choice. Yeah. And one choice is no choice. You have to have at least two options to have a choice, right? Right. And, uh, you know, and some of us, those of us in pastoral ministry, we hear this lament from post-abortive women that I didn't want to go through with it, but yes. I felt like I had no choice. Yeah. I had no choice. I'm so familiar with this as um, someone that's been actively in the pro-life movement. I'm on the board of Maternity Home and Pregnancy Center here in D.C. I have very good friends who work with Project Rachel, which is opposed to board of yes. ministry. So I am familiar with all of the things, all of the pain, all of the coercion, manipulation, these things that women have experienced that has led them to having abortions. It's a lot and it's heavy and it's sad and it's all of these things, you know, that makes it... Gosh, that we need to be doing something to help families in need, to help women in crisis, to help actually change the culture and their attitudes about pregnancy and all these things. And, and let me just say this. I also think we also need to, in the pro-life movement, not put people down when they do have babies in less than quote-unquote ideal circumstances. I remember being shocked 
that some prominent pro-lifers were deriding this graph that showed that there were a larger number of African-American women that were having children outside of wedlock. I saw the graph and I was like, yay, the pro-life message is being heard. Mm -hmm. Other people saw the graph and was like, what's wrong with these Black women? We'll be right back. Speaking of conversing civilly, I do find that this is one of the things that has, I would say, I've noticed in the American church that I've been like, what are we doing? That when Catholics will vocally, in my opinion, be disrespectful of the Holy Father, in my opinion, I'm like, if you're disrespectful to the Holy Father as a Catholic in the United States, and I'm talking about laymen and stuff like that, how do they think that that doesn't then translate to people thinking they can be disrespectful to their local bishop? So there's some things in that regard that I have found just troubling, but maybe that's just me. But I'm wondering, what is your take on sometimes some of the attitudes or the way people talk about the Holy Father in the United States in that regard? I know there are some Catholics that have difficulties with our current Holy Father, Pope Francis, but he's not the only Pope that's been subject to criticism either. It's a little unusual, traditionally, the way the Catholics have with such great respect for the Pope, I suppose. The way things are nowadays, um, we can't deny that sometimes if people have difficulties with uh, a decision or statement of a Pope, that they would make that known. But there's a way to do that respectfully. Exactly. So what concerns me is... This is just one example of how this happens in so many ways that within the church, we're just being co-opted by the culture in which we're swimming, uh, which is very hostile. Uh, Very, if someone disagrees with you, it becomes a personal attack, you know, on the other person. That's why I, what I just said a moment ago, that has not been my experience with Speaker Pelosi, even in public. She shows that respect to the person and to the office. But that's, uh, we don't have much of that anymore these days. Uh, And it uh, pains me to see this happening within the church as well. I think part of it too, I can't help but think the Pope is a father figure, right? Yeah. I'm sure somehow psychologically, definitely spiritually has to do with the demise of fatherhood. Mm. You know, there's such disrespect for fathers. And if some people don't even know what a father is, uh, sadly enough, because of the circumstance that they had growing up, or the father was more of a problem than a grace and a help in their life. I'm also thinking that hopefully people listening will understand that too, and maybe understand that, you know what, you should be respectful to our bishops and to the Holy Father, even if you find some of the things that a bishop or the Holy Father is saying to be unclear on a particular topic or whatever, you still can operate from a position of having respectful interactions. And I'm hoping people hear that. Now, one of the things I read your pastoral letter before I formed you in the womb, which is basically explaining, you know, why we believe what we believe about abortion, why we need to say something and do something about it. But you also say, look, it's a preeminent issue because everything else is built on this. All the rights are built on this. But you also make it clear that because of what we believe about the human person, we're also going to be opposed to racism. We're also doing things around immigration. All of these things, which I think people would probably be surprised to hear. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, this is the the Catholic consistent ethic of life, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, to affirm human dignity. 
I think one of the greatest breakthrough documents uh, in terms of pastoral letters our bishop's conference has issued, and I was a brand new baby bishop at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, was the binational pastoral letter with the Mexican bishop's conference on immigration, Mm -hmm. Strangers No Longer. It was the culmination of a process of dialogues on the border with both sides and that wonderful collaboration. And it laid out uh, very clearly applying Catholic social teaching to the issue of immigration and and the five principles that any immigration policy has to respect. Now, I mean, there's room for negotiation and all that and differences of opinion, but we have to affirm that people have the right to a decent quality of living in their home country so they don't have to immigrate. Mm -hmm. And they have a right to immigrate if they feel the need to do so. Countries also have the right to protect their borders. So, I mean, those rights have to be balanced off and refugees and uh, asylum seekers need to be received and accommodated. And uh, the fifth point is uh, people who are uh, without proper documentation still need to be treated humanely. Mm-hmm. So I think it's they're very sound principles that hopefully everyone could agree upon. I hear criticism from some people that, you know, the bishops are laser focused on abortion. It's the only right. thing that's important to them. And while all the attention, everything invested there, well, first of all, in terms of investment, the church invests far more resources and programs to give immediate assistance to the poor than it does for the cause of respect for life in the womb. Mm-hmm. And again, you would have to have your head buried in the sand not to recognize that Immigration has been a very high priority for the U.S. bishops for a very long time. But as you said, abortion is preeminent for the reasons that it is. It's difficult to compare abortion to racism per se or immigration per se, because, you know, racism is an attitude and it's an attitude that manifests itself in different ways, some less serious and some more serious. So a racial slur is racist, it's wrong, but it's not as bad as segregation, which is as bad as that is, not as bad as lynching. I mean, we're horrified to think that this was tolerated and condoned in the pre-civil rights South, right? Well, abortion is at the same level of lynching because they both involve the killing of innocent human beings, okay? Immigrants are suffering tremendously and we need to come to their aid. I don't see any legislators pushing a policy requiring border patrol agents to shoot at people crossing the border without documentation. Abortion would be at that level. So we have to always recognize that what abortion is, is the taking of an innocent human life in the most brutal way imaginable. So all these issues are important, obviously. And the U.S. Bishops Conference is attending to them. Uh, I mean, I serve on the ad hoc committee about racism. We have an ad hoc committee for that. A few years ago, I think maybe two, three years ago, we issued a pastoral letter on, on gun violence. I got a complaint from someone that saying, why are you paying attention to gun violence when there's so much abortion? So <laughs> it was kind of the other the other side of the spectrum there. So. Well, so I do know in your pastoral letter, you make it clear it's a preeminent political issue. But some people, some Catholics, I think, mistake that to see it as the only issue and that they need to just, you know, we should just ignore everything else. But that's not what I'm hearing from you right now. Oh, correct. Yes, yes. And I think that's the trouble. People don't know how to, at least in my experience, people seem unable to understand the church's teaching about the dignity of the human person being from womb to tomb legitimately means from womb to tomb. Yes. And that 
too often we will get swallowed up in the talking points of a political party and believe that we have to have this kind of allegiance. Therefore, we don't talk about this other issue because it might not look good on my political party. And I'm like, the only people we need, person we need to be concerned with really is Jesus and what is he asking us to do? And some of us are called to different parts in the ministry, but I would hope it's all animated by our understanding of the dignity of the human person being made in the image and likeness of God. And if we could hold on to that and really meditate on that and think about that, I don't think we would see these other issues as being hostile to our ability to be able to talk about and defend life in the womb, to talk about the dignity of the woman, to talk about the dignity of a person regardless of race, all these kinds of things. But there's a real issue, at least in terms of people being able to accept that in the church. And I'm keep thinking, what is causing this? What is causing this kind of ideology that makes us think that if you are talking about racism or immigration or anything else, that somehow you're less Catholic because you're, you know, don't talk explicitly about abortion and vice versa. What do you think is causing this? People are too co-opted by political thinking. Mm. You know, they're more uh, conditioned by that than kind of the consistent Catholic view. There's obviously no problem with someone if they're more animated on the issue of immigration or capital punishment or some of those issues that are politically on the liberal side. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're less, unless they're denying the issues that are on the conservative side of the spectrum. They think right. abortion's okay, but mm. immigration's really the important issue. That's a problem. Yeah. But I don't think most Catholics working on immigration are that way. Certainly not ones who are really active in the church. They right. embrace the full spectrum. But I mean, it's great that some people are more energized on immigration. There's so much to work to do there. And so many of these other issues, housing, you know, huge issue. Homelessness is a huge issue here. We just had a requiem mass for the homeless uh, last Saturday, you know. Yeah. So we need that. We need that. But no matter what issue a Catholic is animated on, it has to be with that broader perspective of the consistent ethic of life in all stages and all conditions. And, and when you talk about housing, I know it looks, San Francisco is like crazy expensive, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> super expensive. But I, I had heard that you yourself have gone down to homeless shelters or soup kitchens and things like that. So you actually see the face of the poor in your diocese. Yes, it's that uh, encounter when you just encounter someone as a fellow human being rather than trying to change them. Yeah, that uh, brings so much civility, and it's really important to listen to people's stories. Yeah, you know, it's always been an eye opener for me when I do that. And the Holy Father has said that priests need to smell like the sheep. You know, in other words, know your flock, be with your flock, listen to their stories. But I'm also curious with San Francisco being a large area that has people who would identify themselves as having same sex attraction and actively living on that. How has that been? For you in the diocese? Because I, I just imagine people not necessarily understanding the church's nuanced position with regard to someone having same-sex attraction versus same-sex acts. So I'm wondering, how have you been able to pastor in that area? I've discovered a lot of people don't understand that distinction about believing an act is wrong, but the person engaging in the act is not wrong, but is, is not evil. The sin Loving the sinner and hating the sin, they don't understand that. They identify the two. That's been really hard, and it's been exasperated by, again, we're talking about the media image. So it's the personal encounter. So I've spent, uh, well, before COVID anyway, 
a lot of time in our, our parish in the Castro district, mm-hmm. listening to stories. They have a Wednesday night supper where they, they sit them down at tables. And that's usually the same people week after week. So that it forms a sense of community. And they okay. cook the meal, they serve the meal. A lot of people come from outside the parish to volunteer to help out. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's real sense of, it's a wonderful thing that they do. So, you know, I've gotten to know the parishioners through that and had sessions with them. So we all can listen to each other's stories. So we have to get to know each other as persons to yeah. break through that. And I remember um, a couple, two, three years ago, I, I got a, a letter from one of the parishioners there who was, uh, and it didn't surprise me how he felt perplexed and torn because I seem to be so pastoral and, and caring about them. And yet I do things that are so divisive and offensive on the issue. Hmm. And uh, he said a lot, there were a lot of other things in the letter I won't go into, but as right. I was getting toward the end of the letter, I thought, I can't respond to all of this in a letter. I, I would have to sit down and talk to him. When he got to the end of the letter, he said, I don't know if you'd be open to it, but I would, if you are, I'd like to come and talk to you sometime. Huh. So I extended an invitation to him. We had to sit down for coffee one morning. And when I wrote him to extend the invitation, I said, you know, I always try really hard to say things respectfully and not say anything offensive or derogatory. So you do me a big favor if you tell me what I've said that has been hurtful or offensive so I can avoid that. Right. So it was an interesting conversation. He has, you know, a same-sex husband and they Uh have two adopted daughters. And, you know, he said that... um, he takes more the father role and the other, uh, his, yes. his partner, more the mother role. And, right. <laughs> and the daughters instinctively call out for mother sometimes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they okay. just instinctively, the kids instinctively know that. So he, he admitted that. But, you know, he's very pro-life, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so that's a big thing we share in common. Yes. But he also said in the course of the conversation uh, that, uh, and I said, uh, you know, if you can't remember anything that I've said, all my homilies and speeches that we have them online, you can look them up. Right. I said, you know, I looked through that all. I, I found out I didn't see anything you said that was offensive. Look at that. But it look just, everything mm. I heard about you and read about you in the media seemed that way. Right. So getting to know each other is, again, I mean, we didn't walk out of that room having changed each other's minds. Right. But I felt a closer bond of friendship with him nonetheless. Look at that. Imagine that, what happens when people actually uh, sit down and and talk and that you felt this friendship with this person that initially thought you were his enemy. Yes. And uh, and also, I think it's interesting for people to hear, because a lot of times I think people assume that if someone's not living 100% exactly according to what we believe as Catholics, that somehow a friendship can't be had. You know, that you can't sit down or talk with it. You and I and I keep thinking they forget we actually, regardless of how someone is living, we still believe they have a dignity that's innate, that's that's inalienable, that that can't be dismissed. And when you have that understanding of the human person, you can have these conversations. You know, you can sit down and listen. You know, uh the yeah. These are they call them the pelvic issues, you know. They're so divisive right now and there's so much animosity. But I thought, you know, for a long time, Catholics and Protestants killed each other. True. And now we're friends. <laughs> right, right. We still have our disagreements on theology, but right. we can come together on some issues. And, well, can't we get beyond that impasse on these other issues? So it's a bigger question. 
But I do know we're recording on November 8th, Monday, November 8th, and next week, the U.S. bishops, of which you are one, are going to gather for your annual meeting in Baltimore and discuss this new teaching document on the Eucharist in the life of the church. And my understanding, after talking with Bishop Cousins, that you all want a Eucharistic revival in the life of Catholics. But then I think that all this about the Eucharistic revival and the secular press getting involved is, oh, what's going to happen with, you know, President Biden or Speaker Pelosi, Catholics and things like that regarding the sacraments. And that seems to me to have been dominating the conversation around the Eucharist. And I'm wondering, what's your take on this and how this has all played out in the media? And what do you think should happen in terms of guidance? I would say the the, um, media certainly has been politicizing it. They keep bringing up Biden and and Pelosi. And, you know, the bishops were making the point that it's it's not going to mention anyone by name, but it's going to be a teaching document to clearly spell out these issues. Although, with all honesty, I have to admit it was the election of President Biden that really spurred this. But it was way overdue. This was something mm. way overdue. And now with the, the Catholic president who's so aggressive for abortion, mm. it makes it very urgent. So I think that gave some stimulus to us doing something that was already overdue. But it's not going to be focused just on that. It's going to be a teaching document about the Eucharist as a gift to be, uh, to be celebrated and to be received and to be lived. So then uh, the question that I'm often asked, and and I've discussed this with people, is should there be such a thing as banning, quote unquote, politicians from receiving communion? And, you know, that people point to, what is it, Canon? Is it 915? 915. 915. And I keep thinking, well, that's really the prerogative of the bishop. (laughs) Yes. But, right? And so how would you address that? I mean, how would you address if people are like, well, what do you think? Do we need to just out and out? ban certain people? Or what would be your take? How would you advise people in this regard? Canon law doesn't work exactly like civil law, uh, especially in the English common law system that we have, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. which is the law is violated, the person is punished. Canon law looks to the salvation of souls. So because someone violates a law, there are other factors that have to be considered. So Pope Francis pointed this out in, uh, you know, he recently promulgated a revision of the Code of Canon Law is uh, cut up into seven chapters, each with a different aspect of the law of, you know, sacraments and Catholic education. One of them is um, penal law, so book six. And in the letter with which he promulgated it, he spoke about the three reasons for applying a penal sanction, which is the to address the issues of justice, to mm-hmm. repair scandal, and for the good of the erring Catholic. Okay. So a bishop or a pastor of a parish uh, would have to have these conversations to help the person understand that and move them down a path of conversion. But if that doesn't happen, at a certain point, there is cause for uh, making a move such as that. If, yeah. if the pastor determines that there's no way that this Catholic is going to get any further down the road of, of conversion. And yeah. this is a very serious matter, causing a lot of scandal. Yeah. Uh, there can be cause for doing that. But that would always be like a private conversation with the person. Would yes. we ever, as the public, ever know 
I'm thinking the only time we'd ever know is if they were formally excommunicated. Well, no, it has been happened. There's formal excommunication, which is different from declaring someone's not to be admitted to communion. Right. So that has happened. Bishop Paprocki of Springfield reaffirmed what his predecessor, Bishop Lucas, had decided about uh, Senator Durbin. And it's been done other times as well. But excommunication, that's more declaration of a fact. This isn't a uh, the situation. An excommunication is imposing a penalty, so it has to follow a certain process, and it's a deprivation of all rights in the church. But we would know that someone was told not to present themselves to communion. Would that be something that would be made publicly known or no? Only if necessary. I mean, if, okay. if the individual mm-hmm. agrees that, okay, I understand, I, I won't present myself for communion, then there's mm-hmm. no need for a public statement about it okay. because the scandal already has said. already been. Uh, taken care of. Okay. And so, for example, we don't know sometimes what goes on in these private conversations. I still recall when Pope Benedict uh, visited the United States and uh, Rudy Giuliani received communion from him. The then Cardinal Egan, Archbishop of New York at the time, didn't know that was going to happen. People were scandalized. And we later found out that he had had conversations with Mr. Giuliani, who had agreed not to go to communion. Okay. He wasn't going that. to communion, but I guess he had an opportunity to receive from the Pope, so he took advantage of it. But mm. it was, wasn't until then that we knew these private conversations had taken place, right. and he had agreed not to receive communion. Interesting. But let me just move on to say this. I think polarization has come into the church, has seeped into the church, and we do see differences in pastoral and theological approaches among the bishops. And I guess I'm asking, is this normal, healthy diversity, or is there a real threat to communion and unity within the U.S. hierarchy with this, what people see as different approaches, pastoral, theological, and whatnot? We've had disagreements on this for a long time, but it seems to be getting more bitter now, and that does worry mm. me. And I think we need to respect each other in doing what we think is the right thing in our conscience. So yeah, yeah. to criticize a bishop for doing or not doing is to judge his conscience. Mm. So no matter what the bishop decides in the situation, we have to respect that. Wow. Thank you for that. And, and to remind people, you know, bishops have consciences too. Yes, and that's I, I my think, point. Right, yes. Everyone right. talks about conscience. They forget that we have a conscience too. Yes. It reminds <laughs> me of actually the cure of ours when he says, you know, I'm doing this because I too have to face the yes, Lord. You, exactly. you know what I mean? So, you know, right. So he's saying that. I just think thank you so much for joining me and for sharing so much about your life as a bishop and your pastoral care of the people in your diocese and what motivates what you are doing in the area of helping people understand the importance of the Eucharist, the importance of the faith and and practicing what you believe. Was there anything else that maybe that you wanted to say that we didn't get to say? Uh, we touched on homelessness, and I mentioned this Requiem Mass for the Homeless. Uh, it was uh, through my liturgical institute, the Benedict Sixteenth Institute for Sacred Music and Divine Worship. We are commissioning new compositions of sacred music that have kind of a contemporary feel, but it's within the genre of polyphony. So this is the second, the first one was the Mass of the Americas, a twin tributary. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So this was the second one that our composer in residence has done of Frank LaRocco. I asked him to somehow, through sacred music, convey the sense of life on the streets. 
Ah. <laughs> you know, it's rather a weird idea of, you know, the chaos and stability, fear yeah. and all that. And uh, he and he did it. Uh, it's definitely within the tradition of, you know, sacred music and polyphony, but it's kind of a little bit avant-garde-ish. Yeah. <laughs> um, not bizarre, no, but a very beautiful, very powerful. He really accomplished this. And it really put me in a place of a spiritual place of being in touch with that reality must be like. So uh, mm. people can, um, it's up on our website, our Archdiocesan website, if they want to see the recording of it. Okay, we'll see about putting a link in the show notes as well. We're trying to lift up beauty, beauty as a means of, of healing and uniting and sensitizing people, again, to the equal human dignity of our brothers and sisters on the streets. They're Amen. Equal, whether they're unhoused, unborn, unemployed, undocumented, they yeah. all have equal human dignity. Amen. Well, thank you for that. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Oh, and by the way, please leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.